Microsoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Sir Gibby, Episode 6, A Sunday at Home. Such were the events of every night, and such have they been since Gibby first assumed this office of guardian, a time so long in proportion to his life that it seemed to him as one of the laws of existence that fathers got drunk and Gibbies took care of them. But Saturday night was always one of special bliss, for then the joy to come spread its arms beneath and around the present delight. All Sunday his father would be his. On that happiest day of all the week, he never set his foot out of doors except to run twice to Mistress Crowell's, once to fetch the dinner which she supplied from her own table, and for which Sir George regularly paid in advance on Saturday before commencing his potations. But indeed, on Sundays, there were no shops open, and the people in their Sunday clothes, many of them with their faces studiously settled into masks intended to express righteousness, were far less interesting, because less alive, than the same people in their workday attire, in their shops, or seated at their stalls, or driving their carts, and looking thoroughly human. As to going to church himself, such an idea had never entered his head. He had not once for a moment imagined that anybody would like him to go to church, that such as he ever went to church. The church was at all a place to which Gibbies, with fathers to look after, should have any desire to go. As to what church going meant, he had not the vaguest idea. It had not even waked the glimmer of a question in his mind. All he knew was that people went to church on Sundays. It was another of the laws of existence, the reason of which he knew no more than why his father went every night to Jink Lane and got drunk. George, however, although he had taught his son nothing, was not without religion, and had notions of duty in respect of the Sabbath. Not even with the prize of whiskey in view would he have consented to earn a sovereign on that day by the lightest of work. Gibby was awake some time before his father, and lay re reveling in love's bliss of proximity. At length Sir George, the merest bubble of nature, awoke, and pushed him from him. The child got up at once, but only to stand by the bedside. He said no word, did not even think an impatient thought, yet his father seemed to feel that he was waiting for him. After two or three huge yawns, he spread out his arms, but unable to stretch himself, yawned again, rolled himself off the bed, and crept feebly across the room, to an empty chest that stood under the skylight. There he seated himself, and for half an hour sat motionless, a perfect type of dilapidation, moral and physical, while a little way off stood Gibby looking on like one awaiting a resurrection. At length he seemed to come to himself, the expected sign of which was that he reached down his hand towards the meeting of roof and floor, and took up a tiny last with a half-made boot upon it. At sight of it in his father's hands, Gibby clapped his with delight, an old delight, renewed every Sunday since he could remember. That boot was for him, and this being the second, the pair would be finished before night. By slow degrees of revival, with many pauses between, George got to work. He wanted no breakfast, and made no inquiry of Gibby whether he had 
had any, but what cared Gibby about breakfast? With his father all to himself, and the father working away to a new boot for him, for him, who had never had a pair of any sort upon his feet since the woolen ones he wore in his mother's lap. Breakfast or no breakfast was much the same to him. It could never have occurred to him that it was his father's part to provide him with breakfast. If he was to have none, it was Sunday. That was to blame. There was no use in going to look for any when the shops were all shut, and everybody, either at church or closed in domestic penetralia, or out for a walk, more than contented. Therefore, while busily his father wedded welt and soul with stitches infranginable, Gibby sat on the floor, preparing wax ends, carefully sticking in the hog's bristle, and rolling the combination with quite professional aptitude. Between the flat of his hand and what a trouser leg he had left, gazing eagerly between at the advancing masterpiece. Occasionally the triumph of expectation would exceed his control, when he would spring from the floor and caper and stride about like a pigeon, soft as a shadow, for he knew his father could not bear noise in the morning, or behind his back execute a pantomimic dumb show of delight, in which he seemed with difficulty to restrain himself from jumping upon him, and hugging him in his ecstasy. Oh, best of parents, working thus even on a Sunday for his Gibby, when everybody else was at church enjoying himself, but Gibby ne never dared hug his father except when he was drunk, why he could hardly have told. Relieved by his dumb show, he would return quiet as an aged grimalkin, and again deposit himself on the floor near his father, where he could see his busy hands. All this time Sir George never spoke a word, incredible as it may seem. However, he was continually, off and on, trying his hardest to think of some Sunday lesson to give his child. Many of those that knew the boy regarded drawing the conclusion from Gibby's practical honesty and his too evident love for his kind. It was incredible that a child should be poor, unselfish, loving, and not deficient in intellect. His father knew, yet he often quieted his conscience in regard to his education, with the reflection that not much could be done for him. Still, every now and then, he would think perhaps he ought to do something. Who could tell but the child might be damned for not understanding the plan of salvation, and brooding over the matter this morning, as well as his headache would permit. He came to the resolution, as he had often done before, to buy shorter catechism. The boy could not learn it, but he would keep re reading it to him, and something might stick. Even now, perhaps he could begin the course by recalling some of the questions and answers that had been the plague of his life every Saturday at school. He set his re recollection to work, therefore in the lumber room of his memory, and again and again sent it back to the task, but could find nothing belonging to the catechism except the first question with its answer, and a few incoherent fragments of others. Moreover, he found his mind so confused and incapable of continuous or concentrated effort that he could not even keep man's chief end and the re rosened and between his fingers from twisting up together in the most extraordinary manner. Yet if the child but had the question, he might get some good of it. There might come when he would say, My father taught me that. Who could tell? 
and he knew he had the words cracked wherever he had dropped their meaning. For the sake of Gibby's immortal part, therefore, he would repeat the answer to the at first most momentous of questions over and over as he worked, in the hope of insinuating something, he could not say what, into the small mental pocket of the innocent. The first, therefore, and almost only words which Gibby heard from his father's lips that morning were these, dozens of times repeated, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But so far was Gibby from perceiving in them any meaning, that even with his father's pronunciation of chief end as chiffin, they roused in his mind no sense or suspicion of obscurity. The words stuck there, notwithstanding, but Gibby was years a man before he found out what a chiffin was. Where was the great matter? How many who have learned their catechisms and deplore the ignorance of others make the least effort to place their chief end even in the direction of that of their creed? Sir George, with his inveterate consuming thirst for whiskey, was but the type of all who would gain their bliss after the scheme of their own fancies instead of the scheme of their existence, who would build their houses after their own childish willfulness instead of the ground plan of their being. Over and over that day he repeated the words, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And all the time his imagination, his desire, his hope were centered on the bottle, which with his very back he felt where it stood behind him, away on the floor at the head of his bed. Nevertheless, when he had gone over them a score of times or so, and Gibby had begun, by merry look and nodding of his head, to manifest that he knew what was coming next, the father felt more content with himself than for years past. And when he was satisfied that Gibby knew all the words, though indeed they were hardly more than sounds to him, he sent him, with a great sense of relief, to fetch the broth and beef and potatoes, from Mistress Crowell's. Eating a real dinner in his father's house, though without a table to set it up on, Gibby felt himself a most privileged person. The only thing that troubled him was that his father ate so little. Not until the twilight began to show did Sir George really begin to revive. But the darker it grew without, the brighter he grew. For amongst not a few others, there was this strange remnant of righteousness in the man, that he never would taste drink before it was dark in winter or in summer, before the regular hour for ceasing work had arrived, and to this rule he kept, and that under far greater difficulties on the Sunday as well. Mistress Crowell would not sell a drop of drink, not even on the sly, on the Sabbath day. She would fain have some stake in the hidden kingdom. And George, who had not a Sunday stomach he could assume for the day, any more than a Sunday coat, was thereby driven to provide his whiskey, and that day drink it at home. When with the bottle so near him, and the sense that he had not to go out to find his relief, his resolution was indeed sorely tried. But he felt that to yield would be to cut his last cable, and be swept on the lee shore of utter ruin. Breathless with eager interest, Gibby watched his father's hands, and just as the darkness closed in, the boot was finished. His father rose, and Gibby, glowing with delight, sprang upon the seat he had left, while his father knelt upon the floor to trap on the unaccustomed foot, the result from which he had just drawn the last. Ah, oh, pity, pity, but even Gibby might by this time have learned to foresee it. Three times already had the same thing happened, the boot would not go on the foot. The real cause of the failure, it were useless to inquire. 
Sir George said that Sunday being the only day he could give to the boots before he could finish them. Gibby's feet had always outgrown the measure, but it may be Sir George was not so good a maker as cobbler. That he meant honestly by the boy, I am sure, and not the less sure, for the confession I am forced to make, that on each occasion, when he thus failed to fit him, he sold the boots the next day at a fair price to a ready-made shop, and drank the proceeds. A stranger thing still was, that although Gibbie had never yet worn boot or shoe, his father's conscience was greatly relieved by the knowledge that he spent his Sundays in making boots for him. Had he been an ordinary child, and given him trouble, he would possibly have hated him. As it was, he had a great, though sadly inoperative, affection for the boy, which was an endless good to them both. After many bootless trials, bootless the feet must remain, and George, laying the failure down in despair, rose from his knees and left Gibby seated on the chest, more like a king discrowned, beggar unshod. And like a king, the little baker bore his pain. He heaved one sigh, and a slow moisture gathered in his eyes, but it did not overflow. One minute only he sat and hugged his desolation, then missing his father, jumped off the box to find him. He sat on the edge of the bed, looking infinitely more disconsolate than Gibby felt, his head and hands hanging down, a picture of utter dejection. Gibby bounded to him, climbed on the bed, and nearly strangled him in the sharp embrace of his little arms. Sir George took him on his knees and kissed him, and the tears rose in his dull eyes. He got up with him, carried him to the box, placed him on it once more, and fetched a piece of brown paper from under the bed. From this he tore carefully several slips, with which he then proceeded to take a most thoughtful measurement of the baffling foot. He was far more to be pitied than Gibby, who would not have worn the boots an hour had they been the best fit and shoot him. The soles of his feet were very nearly equal in resistance to leather, and at least until the snow and hard frost came, he was better without boots. But now the darkness had fallen, and his joy was at the door, but he was always too much ashamed to begin to drink before the child. He hated to uncork the bottle before him. What followed was in regular Sunday routine. Gang o'er to Mistress Crowell's, Gibby, he said, with my compliments. Away ran Gibby, nothing loath, and at his knock was omitted. Mistress Crowell sat in the parlor, taking her tea and expecting him. She was always kind to the child. She could not help feeling that no small part of what ought to be spent on him came to her. And on Sundays, therefore, partly for his sake, partly for her own, she always gave him his tea, nominally tea, really blue city milk, with as much dry bread as he could eat, and a bit of buttered toast from her plate to finish off with. As he ate, he stood at the other side of the table. He looked so miserable in her eyes that, even before her servant, she was ashamed to have him sit with her. But Gibbie was quite content, never thought of sitting, and ate in gladness, every now and then looking up with loving, grateful eyes, which must have gone right to the woman's heart, had it not been for a vague sense she had of being all the time his enemy, and, at, and that although she spent much time in persuading herself that she did her best both for his father and him, when he returned greatly refreshed, and the boots all but forgotten, he found his father, as he knew he would, already started on the business of the evening. 
he had drawn the chest, the only seat in the room, to the side of the bed, against which she leaned his back. A penny candle was burning in a stone blacking bottle on the chimney piece, and on the floor beside the chest stood the bottle of whiskey, a jug of water, a stoneware mug, and a wine glass. There was no fire and no kettle, whence his drinking was sad, as became the Scotch Sabbath in distinction from the Jewish. There, however, was the drinks. Gibby was far from shocks, and he went up to his father with radiant countenance. Sir George put forth his hands and took him between his knees. Gibby, he said solemnly, never ye drink a drap of whisky, never ye racks oot the hand to the bottle, never ye drink anything but water, my man. As he said the words, he stretched out his own hand to the mug, lifted it to his lips, and swallowed a great gulp. Then I don't, I tell you, Gibby, he repeated. Gibby shook his head with positive repudiation. That's right, my man, responded his father with satisfaction. Gin ever I see ye pre-taste the bottle, I'll warsel fray my grave and flag ye to the small what's ye hey, my man. Here followed another gulp from the mug. The thread had conveyed nothing to Gibby, even ha that had he understood it, would have carried anything but terror to his bothered, loving heart. Gibby resumed Sir George after a brief pause. Div ye can what folk'll call ye when I'm died. Gibby again shook his head with expression, this time of mere ignorance. They'll call ye Sir Gibby Galbraith, my man, said his father, and rightly for it will be no nickname, though some may lotch cause. Your father was a suitor, and merit for uh, that. Ye hain a sheer to year for, you're so per follow. Heedin' ye what they say, Gibby, men at your sir Gibby, and hey the honor o' the family to hand up my man, and that ye cannot de-and drink. This cursin' drink's been the ruin o' the Galbraiths as far back as I can that's the only thing I can mean, oh my grandfather, a big bonny man with lang white hair, twice as big as me, Gibby, is seeing him die drunk, I the gutter o' the pump. He drank master thing that was. What would what had come o' you and me, Gibby, my man? Gang to your bed now, and leave me to my own thoughts. No, at there a the best o' company, laddie, but whiles there no that ill, he concluded with a weak smile, as some reflex of himself, not quite unsatisfactory, bloomed faintly in the bean-smeared mirror of his uncertain consciousness. Gibby obeyed, and getting under the gordon tartan, lay and looked out like a weasel from its hole at his father's back. For half an hour or so, Sir George went on drinking. All at once he started to his feet, and turning towards the bed, a white face distorted with agony, kneeled down on the box and groaned out, Oh, God, the pains of hell had gotten hauled upon me. Oh, Lord, I'm of the... He paused, stretched down his hand to the floor, lifted the mug, and drank a huge mouthful. Then, with a cough that sounded apologetic, set it down, and recommenced his frightful petition. His utterance began to grow indistinct. Then he fell forward upon the bed, groaning, and his voice died gradually away. Gibby had listened to all this he said, but the awe of hearing his father talk to one unseen made his soul very still. And when he ceased, he fell asleep. 
Gibby slept some time. When he woke, it was pitch dark, and he was not lying on his father's bosom. He felt about with his hands till he found his father's head. Then he got up and tried to rouse him, and failing to get him on to the bed, but in that too he was sadly unsuccessful. What with the drunkenness and the weight of him, the result of the boy's best endeavor was that Sir George had slipped half-rolled down upon the box, and from that to the floor, assured that of his own helplessness, we Gibby dragged the miserable bolster from the bed, and got it under his father's head, then covered him with the plaid, and creeping under it, laid himself on his father's bosom, where soon he slept again. He woke very cold, and getting up, turned heels overhead several times to warm himself, but quietly, for his father was still asleep. The room was no longer dark, for the moon was shining through the skylight. When he had got himself a little warmer, he turned to have a look at his father. The pale light shone full upon his face, and it was that, Gibby thought, which made him look so strange. He darted to him and stared aghast. He had never seen him look like that before, even when most drunk. He threw himself upon him. His face was dreadfully cold. He pulled and shook him in fear. He could not have told of what, but he would not wake. He had passed on. But Gibby did not know anything about death, and went on trying to wake him. At last he observed that although his mouth was wide open, the breath did not come from it. Thereupon his heart began to fail him. But when he lifted an eyelid and saw what was under it, the house rang with a despairing shriek of the little orphan. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acresoft Story Classic. <laughs>